From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just pressed the stop button on this week's show, and there was so much to get into. We're talking about the big stories, including as the cost of living crisis bites, millions of Britons would struggle to cover an extra £20 a month. Some really interesting survey data putting some real world numbers on the cost of living crisis. We look at the impact this is having on the financial sector as a whole and, and dig into how we think fintechs might be able to help. Second story is Twig acquiring Vibe Technology for more sustainable finances for Gen Z. We're joined by the CEO, Gary, who helps us understand the thinking behind this acquisition, how it fits into their wider strategy, and also deep diving into that Gen Z consumer audience, what it takes to design and launch a product that really resonates with them. And also Denmark recording a year without bank robberies. So looking at the impact of this shift towards a cashless society, the good and the bad. We get into all this and much more, but first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider, 11FS Spotlight. 11FS explores open mic night after dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 693 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my co-host, Ross Gallagher, manager at LoanFest. Hey, Ross. Working on anything exciting your first week back? Hey, Kate. Happy New Year. Um, Yes, it's great to be back. Working on anything exciting? Um, Always. I think that's the beauty of uh, of what we do. Absolutely. But um, can't divide too much, obviously. So um, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Lindsay Davis, Head of Markets at Atomic. Welcome back, Lindsay. Thank you for joining us. Can you give our audience a reminder of you and Atomic, please? Thank you for having me back at the top of the new year. Atomic, as a head of markets, I am a part of the payroll connectivity space. We help build infrastructure for neobanks, fintech, big banks to connect to U.S. consumers' direct deposit as well as to access income and employment verification by a unified API layer. And we're working on some fun new things in the new year, including bringing out earned wage access benefits, which is top of mind given some of the stories we'll be running through today. Awesome. We are absolutely looking forward to getting your perspectives for sure. Uh, And we also have a Fintech Insider debut for Gary Chupi, CEO and founder at Twig. Welcome to the show, Gary. How are you doing? Can you give our audience an introduction to you and to Twig, please? Thanks for the invitation, Kate and Ross. Serial entrepreneur, uh, Twig is uh, my third startup. Uh, In the past, uh, I built uh, Social DNA, exited to Levi's at Monochain, which is one of the OGs on the NFT space. At Twig, we uh, have done what we call the Bank of Things, which enable consumers to use things such as clothes, electronics as a currency, and the users get like a debit card where they can use whatever Visa is accepted or MasterCard in the world. 
Awesome. Um, yeah, doing some really, really fascinating stuff. And we should probably like, give a disclosure that we're big fans of Twig at Lemon Fest. You guys won an award, uh, an Lemon Fest award. So thank you very much for joining us and looking forward to talking about your news. You've got some exciting stuff going on. So with that, let's get into the news. So our first story comes from Sky News, and that is that millions of Britons would struggle to cover an extra £20 a month as the cost of living crisis continued to bite. According to new research from Citizens Advice, more than a third of Brits would find a £20 increase in their monthly expenditure difficult or impossible to cover. Of 2,000 adults surveyed in December, one in four would find it somewhat difficult, 7% would find it very difficult, and 4% would find it impossible. A third have also reported to dipping into their savings in the last three months, with more than 50% having run out of savings or expect to in the next three months. Around three in 10 of those surveyed are losing sleep at least once a week due to financial worries. Citizens Advice Chief Executive Dame Claire Moriarty said... Current government support is a sticking plaster which is quickly being exhausted due to the increased pressures people are feeling. Whew, well, starting off on a on a cheerful cheerful note for the year, you know, this is understandably pretty hard reading, Ross. Like, what was your reaction to this? How how much longer can it continue? Well, I mean, it can't continue, right? I mean, we're talking in this story about an extra £20 a month. When we think about how much, just to take a single example, energy has already gone up for consumers. I mean, 20, 20 pounds a month is, is, is sort of a drop in the ocean. I mean, it's a hugely, hugely worrying trend. I think the pressures on households right now is just extraordinary. And there's no doubt, I think, that this is already pushing um, people to the brink. If I pick up on um, the Dame Claire, Claire Moriarty's point, so she said, government support is a sticking plaster. It's quickly being exhausted due to increased pressures people are facing. I mean, I think this is best reflected probably by the the rise in, in, in food banks usage in the UK, right? So the Trussell Trust, they provide food banks across the UK. They've reported an 81% increase in its network usage of food banks in the last five years. 25% of people in the UK using food banks are using them for the first time, right? So this is people that never actually expected that they would have to use food banks. And I think the really worrying thing is that um, the soaring demand that's being caused by the rising cost of living for food banks, it's already um, its already outstripping donations. So, I mean, this simply, to go back to your point, Kate, just isn't sustainable. Absolutely. Gary, you know, how can financial services help with this you know you guys are, are building a building a fintech you know how is this implementing the decisions that you're having to make about what you're designing and what you're launching to your customers sure uh, from our perspective we are a very social driven uh, startup so for uh, our our goal the way you see it it is like unlocking cash for people uh, and you do that by making it much easier for them to convert their things into cash uh, we have seen, especially in the last quarter, like a huge increase in volume of items that people are trading in for cash. And uh, the way we see it, we are innovating, trying to build products to alleviate the pain as much as possible. There is like a budgeting feature which you're bringing into the App Store next month. There is, uh, we, we're launching a feature in collaboration with one of the other positions Mobi we've done in the past where people will be able to sell their old phone and rent a new phone so they can still keep using like a device. But that's from our perspective. Also through donations, we enable people to donate in the app clothes and other goods as well 
to make it slightly easier for people in a less fortunate position to some extent to reduce the pain. Lindsay, this is you know, obviously analysis from, from the UK, a, a UK lens, but you know, what are you seeing in the US? Is the cost of living crisis sort of biting in a similar way there? It's a bit separate from from how things are, are being driven in, in your economy. I think politically, you've been going through a, a change of guard and you don't have popular appeal for, for any one particular candidate with opposition, you know, currently leading in, in the polls. I mean, the people want leadership. They want strong leadership. I mean, the healthcare crisis globally as a result of the pandemic has not really gotten much better. I think that for each of our economies, a lot of, of those those emergency expenses often tie back to, to healthcare. And within the U.S., we've been able to, at least this year during the holiday season, you know, combat COVID in a, in a more you know, defensible way versus last year where we had this massive spike when families got back together. But from, you know, out outstripping, you know, what is the day-to-day cost of living? Inflation is not something that we've been able to rein in our, ourselves. And the U.S. consumer is certainly hurting. And we had a, you know, a crisis earlier this year with the rising gas prices, you know, where, where places known for, for low gas prices themselves received record highs and and those those expenses those costs at the pump like great there's companies working on on solving those problems but we need you know broader political alignment around helping put more money back in the pockets of consumers for us i think Lindsay's obviously touched on the the health impact of of covid you know the research talks about the health impact of people struggling with sleep for example how intrinsically are financial health and physical health linked do you think yeah, they're absolutely linked. And I think, you know, when you think about who's who's sort of really at the the sharp end of this, right? It's it's those most vulnerable in society, right? And I think obviously now this is a, a major topic um of discussion. It's something that everybody's aware of. It's something that everybody's feeling that themselves on a per- personal level. Like I said, I think households, individuals are being pushed to the brink. But I think those most vulnerable in society have been dealing with this for much longer, right? And I think there is a, an intrinsic link between financial health, mental health. And I think, yes, that's probably like, you know, another way that we need to think about, you know, the, the sort of the impact on people's mental health. But I think those at the really, the really sharp end of this have, have already been dealing with it for a really long time. And I think, you know, everything that we're seeing now, particularly in the UK economy, I think speaks to a real lack of like financial resilience at, at a personal level. I think, um, you know, lots of people you know, have already exhausted savings. I mean, completely gone through them. I think unsecured credit, so like credit cards, personal loans, those types of credit products, those balances are already back where they were sort of before the the Great Recession. And I think we're already seeing default delinquencies on those types of products rising at record levels, right? So um, the the impact, I think, on health, physical health, mental health, people not sleeping, et cetera, et cetera, um, is a, a huge concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose you need that point you make around resiliency like I think that is so so key and I suppose you you don't want to be too pessimistic or or make too many sort of stereotypical judgments but I find it difficult to imagine that a lot of people probably myself included right like who work in financial services like truly understand what it's like to not have any kind of financial safety net at all you know I was looking at the stats like you know the average salary annual salary in the UK last year like the average median salary I think was 33,000 yeah that's kind of like the entry level salary for most banks graduate schemes you know it's not really 
uh, you're not you're not really filling these organisations of individuals who are probably burning down to zero at the end of each month. Um, and I think that's new. I'd love to see fintechs kind of playing a role in in helping to kind of broaden out the the represent the representativeness of people that are trying to build and design solutions in this space. Um, you know, Gary, I don't know, like, how, how do you guys approach recruitment? How are you trying to bring people into your teams that can truly kind of understand these these situations and, and really empathize with your customers? Yeah, absolutely. For us, like, we are very Gen Z driven. So we try to hire as many Gen Z as possible. When it comes to balance, we try to keep it as well. Most of our users are female. So when it comes to recruiting, trying to at the moment trying to recruit more females than males, just because it's a better representative of uh, our user base as well. It's much more difficult when it comes to tech hirings because there is like less female engineers in the market. But I think uh, our recruitment team has done a, an amazing job to have relatively like a good balanced team even there. Um, from from our perspective, the way we see it is. Uh, especially the new generation, had faced a lot with uh, COVID crisis, especially the, the fresh graduate, uh, the people graduated during uh, COVID. It's been very challenging for them to, to even start a career. You see kind of a new generation that uh, have become quite native to side hustles, uh, such as like on TikTok or like making money with drop shipping copywriting and all, all of these kind of new skills that can bring to employment. So essentially it requires more open-minded towards of that skill set. It's not necessarily what is on someone's CV that people are good at. You should also see what other attributes they can bring as well that might not be as visible on someone's CV as well. Absolutely. Lindsay, so just before we, just before we wrap up on, on this, I was intrigued. You mentioned in the intro that you guys are looking at earned wage access. You know, Was that a a response to, to kind of the economic situation we're in. Obviously, like some people do see earned wage access as a product that can help in, in these kinds of times. Or you know, was that something that was always on your roadmap and it's, it's just happening to land at this sort of time? Well, Quarter Atomic's mission is actually helping the most vulnerable members of society. So earned wage access was always something on the roadmap. Having the ability to pull that forward, given the response and the demand from our customers, hey, would you be interested in an earned wage access style product or offering this type of program? And the answer overwhelmingly was yes. So we have actually doubled down on our ability to do that with the introduction of our employer link solution at the end of last year, which will be an administrative level access element. So not only are you able to access consumer permission data, but at the employer level, you'll be able to access again, permission data. And for us, the ability to give that consumer the, the data, the financial data that lives within a payroll system, whether that's your current employment, your gig economy platform, or your previous employment, that's a financial record, that's a history of your financial health, yet often overlooked by our, our credit bureau systems, in particular when you think of the gig economy. These consumers don't have a proper credit file by the traditional definition. However, the bureaus are evolving to start to pull this data in. And if Atomic can offer a centralized, you know, high fidelity source of data, that is a, a weapon for that consumer to, to move and vote with their feet, to pick and choose financial services that align with their values. When you think about, you know, the the idea of investing in, in companies and, and being able to bank with a company that doesn't, you know, support guns and 
carbon emission or the ability to say, hey, I want a, an app that focuses on my needs as a first time parent or, you know, a recent you know, gig economy worker that doesn't have access to benefits because in this country, employment is tied to healthcare and you have to be employed to get access to healthcare, which makes it a lot more challenging for us as consumers when say potentially there are layoffs in the economy. And, and that's something that's that's happening as we speak. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, um, I really like the idea of giving metaphorical weapons to, to consumers that, that that really appeals to me. I know it just like, felt like the right word. Um, <laughs> it's probably a bit morbid, but fight back people. Like it's 2023, get your goals right. Like take your finances back, right? Go for it. Love it. Um, sadly, going to have to move on to our, our next story, but we can keep the weapons theme going throughout. I quite like that one. Um, this next story comes from Fenextra, and that is that Twig has acquired Vibe Technology. Sustainability-focused and self-described bank of things, Twig, is acquiring Vibe, a French neobank for young people. The teen banking services provider adds to Twig's recent acquisitions, which included UK-based Loopster and Moby.market, and marks the latest step forward in the company's aim to become the go-to platform for the Gen Z market. Launched in 2021, Twig describes itself as a fintech based on circular economy principles, allowing users to sell or trade in their clothes or electronics for instant cash. Twig says it is currently the fastest growing fintech in Europe, having hit 1 million users in October, just 15 months after launching. And it follows a $35 million raise a year ago to support the startup's expansion into EU and US markets and the rollout of its Web3 payment infrastructure in a Series A round led by Fasanara Capital. Gary... Always a little bit odd talking about people in the third person when when you're when you're here with me. Um, naturally, we should come to you first on this. Some really really exciting news to start the year for Twig. Congratulations to the team. Could you tell us more about the acquisition? Why vibe? Why now? Yeah, sure. I mean, for us, um, our focus uh, we know from early days that our product resonates quite well with Gen Z, and we represent their values. Wanting both it comes to sustainability, but also uh, about reducing as much waste as possible. The team at uh, Vibe, uh, Vincent and the rest of the team has built an amazing uh, team banking product. From a tech standpoint, I think we realized earlier on that if you're going to be the go-to for Gen Z, we shouldn't start that experience when they are 18-year-olds. We should start it much earlier. So, and this is what this acquisition has enabled us to do to, for us to expand our technology to also offering our product to 13 to 18 year olds as well for from this year. Uh, additionally, it's part of our expansion to the French market as well. We already have uh, 20,000 users in France, which we've done in uh, five weeks uh, last year, and we'll expand further presence in the market there. Awesome. Obviously, you've touched on you know, the fact that this allows you to reach out to that younger customer base. Um, but I mean, what else does buy a neobank do, I suppose, for your, for your product set in particular, and, and that maybe the future product set that you might take to market you know, that you, you didn't have in the locker before? Yeah, sure. For us, this is mostly technology driven uh, because we want to, uh, our, our, one of like our key goals this year it is to offer team banking. And this is what enables us to do, not just in the French market, but also in uh, UK, rest of Europe and question in the US as well. Um, that's the the core focus of the deal. Awesome, Ross. What was your what was your response to this news? What did you think? Well, Gary, first of all, congratulations. I mean, some some staggering numbers there. I mean, the fastest growing fintech in Europe in no time at all. The number of users that you, you sort of mentioned in France really in no time at all. So it shows, I think, that you know that that I think actually it's the point that you made about reflecting Gen Z's values, and they're clearly 
sort of reacting to that and responding to it in a positive way in terms of how they're adopting the proposition. Um, so I think I think that's great. I think the my my major takeaway, Gary, from what you said, was about you know sort of capturing consumers earlier, right, and 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 being able to sort of help them develop those more positive financial behaviors, right? Um, and I think actually there's a neat link back to I think Lindsay, your point on finishing the previous story was it's that point about empowerment, right, and and, and giving people those tools those habits, those behaviors. And I think the earlier that you can you can capture them and sort of share those tools, help them develop those more positive financial habits and behaviors, I think is 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 great. So from that perspective, I think the acquisition makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, besides financial literacy, it's also something to you know, make people more aware is that climate literacy as well. Because like uh, sooner people are educated about make better uh, decisions on their lifestyle that has uh, impact on the environment, whether positive or negative, we will see a uh, big reshape of the society as you see it, as you know it. Lindsay, you know, you, have you seen anything like this, like what, like what Twig are doing in the, in the US? Is there anything operating in a similar space? In terms of the circular finance in the ESG space, yes. Uh, previous to this role at Atomic, I was the head of uh, fintech reporting over at CB Insights, where one of my fintech trends to watch in 2019 was actually the explosion of VSG. And it did eventually happen. However, it took a, you know, market crisis and a correction to start to see that ESG as a portfolio component actually performed much better because these companies in, initially, in theory, were performing more responsibly and doing, you know, better for the economy, which actually is, is good for again, the bottom line at the end. So in terms of, you know, the resiliency of it as an investment class, and then also to, to Gary's point, we do have a very similar, you know, ethos among younger demographics where they care about their, you know, impact on, on the environment. You see an abundance of new consumer packaged goods companies championing, you know, less use of, of single plastics, the ability to recycle your clothing and, and get credit towards, you know, recycled clothing on their platform. Like these, these have been around for a couple of years now. So it's nice to see an application not only tie that, you know, initial offering as a as a product set as people go into you know the new year cleaning out their closets but then hey here's actually your wallet to actually start to use those funds versus creating a separate account which often goes to delinquent i i think it's a very smart way of, of tying it all together holistically and i'd be curious to see you know where you can actually play on that theme in terms of adding on adjacent solutions whether that's not only investing in in today in, in tech stocks and in portfolios where there are a number of companies offering solutions like that but then into a retirement account hey long term i believe that this is sustainably going to you know the carbon footprint of of my portfolio i i want to back my retirement on that you know i think that that playing to, to strong values is again even when you think about politics like you need to generate people to to want to care about something and this is something that that younger demographics have voiced and championed and i'm certain we'll see more of absolutely 100 um i think it's interesting obviously i've, I've been at 11FS for a couple of years now and I remember like when we first started 11FS and we were talking to our clients about new spaces they should explore you know we would talk about sustainability and a lot of our clients would kind of see it as a bit of a like oh isn't that kind of cute and isn't that something that's like oh it's it's fun and it's interesting but like no one's actually really gonna 
form a behavior around it. No one's actually going to change what they're doing financially because of it. And I think now that that dial has, has really shifted and we're starting to see people recognize, you know, driven by Gen Z in particular, like this is a customer group, which is which is incoming. And if you're not prepared for it, then you're, you're really going to struggle. Um, Gary, I suppose I'm, I'm really intrigued to know, did you guys decide on the value proposition first and then identify Gen Z as like the right market for it? Or did you decide on the customer group first and then work the proposition back from that? In our case, I think we decided on the value proposition. We had the vision of like a bank of things uh, and we went to the market with it. And in the journey, we find out that this solution resonated. We expected a younger kind of like audience, uh, but we don't expect the this huge uptake with uh, Gen Zs, uh, and uh, so for us, uh, to some extent, it was a surprise. Like the growth, for sure, has been a surprise for everyone involved in the team. We didn't expect to grow this fast, uh, but uh, like uh, the resonation with uh, Gen Z, I think, is, is something that uh, we, we didn't expect it to these levels. Like we expected to some certain extent, but not at these at this huge levels. It's definitely a, a nice. <laughs> Nicer to be have a surprise in that direction than to the other direction for sure. Um, I'd also love to get your take on. Um, you know, so you've you've done a couple of acquisitions now, and I know, it, you know it's a different kind of approach to take to kind of grow with acquisitions versus to kind of just try and keep everything under one house. You know what what's driven that? Like what's what's kind of driven your 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 decision to go towards acquisitions, and um, what impact has that had on on your business and on the team? Sure. From our perspective, like we're growing organically, like very fast on its own. But the, the way you see it, uh, especially the, the current climate, it's uh, there is uh, many good opportunities in the market that uh, can enable us to grow organically as well. So typically, it's I guess to some extent it's a contrarian approach from a founder's perspective, because what you are taught it is just focus on your business, focus on a niche. Don't go even after a big market. Just trying to, uh, to to grow as fast, get as much of the niche as possible. Whereas our approach, it is that uh, we uh, we are looking for ways how to reach the 2024 targets in 2023, how to reach 2025 targets in 2024. And I believe that acquisitions can enable us to do that much faster. In uh, all the three acquisitions we have done so far, have had like a strategic input into the company uh, and it's all uh, part of uh, our kind of a growth strategy and uh, really we just have started uh, literally uh, as, as a business and uh, there is a big opportunity for us but also uh, with the current climate is many good opportunities and I believe this year will be an M&A year in the fintech space. It's going to be a lot of consolidation in the market uh, and uh, for us, I think we'll be open for more acquisitions this year as well. So uh, the way we see it, it is uh, at the moment it is a winter time uh, in the tech space, and uh, during the winter time it is a time that uh, you can use to innovate and uh, grow. Uh, and by growth, it's not necessarily just organic; it can be also inorganic. It's a uh, yeah. There's a lot of I suppose, negative talk around you know, the challenges the industry are facing so i think it's definitely refreshing to to hear yeah someone like yourself talking about the opportunities and and the the positives that, that this time can give for a, a fintech and how you focus awesome well we're just going to take a quick pause here we'll be back shortly mm-hmm. 
Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explores series, videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as non-fungible tokens, buy now, pay later, the cost of living, ESG, circular economies, embedded finance, and inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story, and that is from Finextra, and it's that fintechs are calling for clarity over open banking reforms. A group of 17 fintechs and the trade association FDATA have signed an open letter calling for urgent clarity on the future of open banking in the UK. It comes after UK authorities last week published an update on plans for a successor to the open banking implementation entity, the OBIE, but provided little concrete detail on the governance of the future body or its funding mechanism. A strategic working group chaired by Brian Zhang is set to report back on some of the issues in January. The FinTech Coalition is concerned that we have not received clear direction from the Joint Regulatory Oversight Committee, JROC, about how the 2017 CMA, Competition and Market Authorities, order will continue to be enforced after the open banking implementation entity is dissolved. The group is calling for an acceleration of the process to define the future governance and enforcement of open banking in 2023. To find out more, we heard from Paul Lloyd, CMO and co-founder at Snoop App, a co-signer of the letter. So let's hear from him now. With over 6 million people using open banking, it's undoubtedly been a huge policy success, but it's clear that the potential affords the UK a far greater opportunity. You only need to consider that if open banking had travelled faster and further from a policy perspective than it has to date, millions more consumers would have entered the cost-living crisis, armed with the tools and resources to better weather the storm. From our perspective, a recurring regulatory theme seems to be a propensity to look at edge cases, rather than focusing on getting things right at the very core of the ecosystem. The bigger opportunities must be seized. All banks must provide properly performant API access, not just the big ones. New entrants taking a large share must support open banking at the outset. All providers must meet basic minimum standards, and when they're not, proper regulatory enforcement is needed. From our perspective, there is just not enough clarity yet on how else we achieve for the long term. The stepping stone approach to regulation seems to date needs to evolve so we can move forward at pace, drive investment and innovation in the sector, take the benefits to millions more people and support economic growth in the UK. And that requires vision, clarity and a long-term approach, which we're looking forward to seeing. Strong words from, from the team at Snape. Ross, what was your reaction to this story? Yeah, look, I think there's a sort of strong narrative here around like lots done more to do. Like, I think we have to acknowledge that open banking in the UK has been a big success, right? And I think I think polls, polls call that out. And I think we're, we're, we're streets ahead of other markets, right? Both in terms of sort of implementation and adoption. But I think the call to action that's here is that, you know, there is still a lot more that, that can be achieved through open banking, right? I don't think we've realized the full potential of open banking by any stretch. And I think actually... To start to achieve it, we we probably do need to be a little bit more creative, inject that sense of, of sort of urgency. And that, I guess, that urgency, that clarity, it does need to come from someone, someone who can lay the track um, for these providers, do it with authority, do it with certainty so the industry knows where it stands and, I guess, has that sort of clear North Star vision of, of what it's working towards. Yeah, it's really challenging, isn't it? I think... Um getting to a system which 
can be sort of centrally controlled whilst also not being like too controlling and too dictatorial i think is, is a real is a real challenge you know lindsay obviously in the us there is no formal regulation for open banking in like a mandated way like this so you know have you seen similar issues coming up are there are there points of difference that you think uh, are emerging from different regulatory approaches just a small disclaimer note we're actually members of fdata that that put out and it sort of had contributed to this this body of work. Open banking is something I have personally been researching and used the UK's open banking framework as as a model that I start started to see expand globally because it it opens up the market for consumers to be able to port their relationships more freely. Right now, having data is financial power. Again, it is a weapon for the end consumer, but today when it's blockaded artificially, it is then hamstringing their ability to access those those fairer financial services, the new in you know innovative products that are coming out of different markets and economies. Like we've seen, I believe it is somewhat successful in Europe as a result of seeing the flourishing of fintech companies and then also in tandem with the ability to get a financial charter, the ability to be on a limited charter and then become a full-fledged bank, which is something we also don't have. Within the US last year, we had a large delay within our own open banking framework, but this year, as, as we heard at Money 2020, and, and you can actually replay the FinTech Insider news where, where Chopra was on stage basically saying that 2023, you can expect rulemaking to start to come out and they will have an open forum for opinion. But the thing in, that I really dialed into was, was the safety of that data, which is something that touches on a, another story later. But for the consumer to be able to safely and securely access their financial data and port that relationship, it comes down to a fundamental question. Whose data is it? And whose responsibility is it to protect? Big questions for sure. I got opinions, but loosely held. Oh, no. Yeah. No, go for it. It's your data, your financial data. It is your financial health. It is your financial picture. You should be able to port that that data wherever it needs to go. And it should move more seamlessly. However, whomever is, is the shepherd and the steward of that data is responsible for protecting it. And thus far, companies have done an abysmal job of protecting our data. And some of these are companies we've all had to use as a result of qualifying for financial products. But the the onus and the responsibility is not widely understood, nor is it really respected. But these companies continue to survive despite massive data breaches that are still being settled. Opinions very much welcome, for sure. <laughs> Gary, um, you, how, much, how big a factor is open banking in, in what you guys are building? It has a very, very important factor, especially when it comes to like payments, uh, depositing into the accounts of the users, and just make it much easier for users to move from one player to another player. It, it helps democratizing the whole financial services industry. It makes it uh, much easier for entrepreneurs to innovate in the space. Uh, it enables uh, a more efficient uh, way for uh, uh, financial service company to operate and uh, so we, the way the way you see it is like truly beneficial and uh, to some extent we, we feel uh, lucky it's an opportunity for us to be a British uh, startup uh, because uh, it's much more advanced than what you've seen in the US or the rest of Europe so I think uh, it's been uh, it's, it's something that uh, it's impacting the industry in a positive way and we'll love to see more innovation coming through it as well. What what would you what would you like to see coming further down the line? What what would help support like your growth mission at, at Twig? The way we see it when it comes to 
just like for instance, I was mentioning, like there is a budget tool that we are about to 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 launch, and what makes it uh, quite powerful, it is that through open banking, we we don't have we don't have access to the users will have access into organizing the data, not just the tweak data, but also the data they have with the traditional banks and uh, so on. We uh, especially with uh, with new kind of like ways you can use AI as well. We, the, the, way, the way I see the role of a business is to make people's life easier and we want to find more innovative way to make our users life easier but uh, in, in general just like it's better ways to manage people's finances going back to the topic we talked earlier on uh, that especially now more than ever we need to find clever ways to make uh, £100 stretch for more than in the past. Ross, do you, do you think this letter will actually make a difference like is it going to change anything or drive towards any of those outcomes that Gary was talking about I hope it will I mean I think what um I think what this coalition is saying is like let's be more ambitious right like let's let's step up to the plate and I think I think we need to see that in 2023 right picking up on Gary's point I mean the the financial tools that are going to be most important in the context of the rising cost of living that I know we've talked about quite a bit but the tools that are going to get people through those are tools like Snoop, right? You know, tools that help you manage your spending, that give you that better visibility, that better control. You know, tools like um, even ClearScore, for example, you wouldn't necessarily think of as a financial product. But of course, you know, through APIs, they connect in with the providers, they can share user data and they can get you better rates on financial products, right? It's a clear use case. So I think, you know, we have made clear strides in that sense but you know could they go further i mean yes and i think there's clear evidence that says once you provide that visibility once you give consumers greater visibility and control over their finances that actually they need more they demand more and more quickly they want to understand how do they build better financial habits how do they make their money go further so i think in the context of 2023 um i i i hope that we do see um the 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 things that they're asking for fingers crossed um Time to move us on to our, our next story now, sadly. Um, and that comes from Business Leader, and it's that Stripe has been ranked the world's most valuable fintech in 2022. New research from Utility Bidder has revealed US fintech Stripe as the most valuable in the world in 2022, standing at a cool $95 billion. Rounding out the top three are the UK-based Checkout.com at $40 billion and Revolut at $33 billion. Stripe achieved unicorn status in 2014, four years after its founding. The research also revealed that prop tech startup Picasso reached unicorn status the fastest out of all the companies on the list, taking less than six months to reach a valuation of $1 billion as well. It is followed by multi-chain NFT platform Magic Eden, which achieved the status in nine months. The United States took the crown for fintech capital of the world, surprise, surprise, being home to 132 companies with a unicorn status. And US companies make up over 50%, 5-0, of all companies on the list. The UK has the second highest number of fintechs valued at over $1 billion with a total of 26. Except for one of these being based in Peterborough, all of the rest are based in London. Um... Well, my first reaction to the story is I wanted to know which fintech is based in Peterborough. I feel like I, I, I don't know which one. Ross, do you know which one that is? I don't, but my first my first reaction was also shout out to Peterborough. Yeah. Um, what was your reaction to this news, Ross? Were you taken by surprise by any of it? Um, uh, look, I mean, I think my initial reaction was if we weren't 
skeptical about, you know, valuations before then I think we probably should be now. Right. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I love Stripe and I love the, the way that they keep innovating and, you know, an example being how they've sort of started to pay out in USDC, sort of bringing more people in more geographies into sort of formal financial services and all that sort of stuff, I think is hugely impactful. But I think um, valuations, it's only sort of like one lens, right? And I think it doesn't necessarily speak to sort of strong business fundamentals. And I think actually, you know, Gary, if we go back to the Twig story, right? And I think, you know, we talked about sort of investors, but I think from a VC perspective, I'd love to see VCs sort of prioritize investments where there is an obvious sort of like environmental or social or governance sort of upside, right? Because I think that speaks to a more complete view of those sorts of relevant fundamentals. I think if businesses are accounting for sustainability and the impact that they're going to have on the world around them, then I think that's a better indicator of future success. Gary, what's your what's your view? Should ESG be part of valuations? So absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Uh, from the beginning, our ethos has been that sustainability and capitalism can coexist. And we like to see, because for us as entrepreneurs, we have, we have thousands of millions of ideas, what new business to build. But the usher should spend more time to focus on not just on the impact on the uh, shareholders, but also the impact on other stakeholders as well, such as uh, environment, uh, sustainability, but also social causes that the business can create. Like, uh, so I agree to Thoros, this is just one side of the story, just on evaluation, because it tells like, what's the impact they have on the shareholders, but we love to see more on the impact they can have on society, like jobs created, uh, also on the impact uh, they have on the environment and uh, impact on other kind of like uh, sides of business can, can be impactful as well. Stripe and Revolut and check out, I think it's, it's a great win for the UK a fintech ecosystem because you can see some of the fastest growing like fintechs on the top ranks come from like UK, from London in particular. And uh, it looks like Peter Borough as well. It's uh, contributing to the, to, to the case. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it also shows that UK uh, and London in particular has managed to, to create a good hub when uh, like new fintech uh, startups can be kind of grown into like unicorns and decacorns in, in relatively like, uh, like super fast time as well. Yeah, it's definitely a good, good representation for a good uh, reflection of, of the UK ecosystem, as you say, but I think obviously, you know, Lindsay's here. Lindsay, you need to kind of take the kudos for the US becoming the fintech capital of the world on behalf of your your whole your whole nation. But I mean, it's obviously it's great that and unsurprising that the US has that crown. Um, is it also like maybe if we're being a little bit a little bit causing conflict, like is it a little bit depressing that you know there's still so much fintech concentrated in the US? Is it is should there be more of a spread you know globally to try and diversify a bit more? When you think about the U.S. businesses like Stripe that have been able to be successful, it's because they are addressing multi-trillion dollar TAMs as well as going global. So Stripe has expanded across multiple countries at this point. So their ability to to expand their global footprint and to service those local mar markets is what has positioned them to be as successful as it has been. I think when you think back to the environment, you know, sustainability 
and social responsibilities elements of it, corporate social responsibility is fundamentally important as a company to go public. So they will be measured against that as a publicly traded company. And they're one of the last darlings to have been rumored to, to not be rumored to go public, given what's going on in the current markets. Like they, And again, they're well capitalized to to remain private. However, if you look at Adyen, it's its European contender, they went public and saw enormous success in the public markets. And that's as a as a European based company. So people could argue the counter when we think about what's going on in the layoff situation, you know, what has weathered better, you know, staying private longer, or going public, you know, the, the markets want opportunity, I think, at the end of the day, for the consumer, if if they want opportunity to invest in the upside of that, the only way to do that at, you know, at a public point of access is is in the public markets and the equity markets. So when these companies stay private for too long, you know, the we we actually don't benefit from it. So we're celebrating lists of companies that have stayed private too long, in my opinion. Gary, obviously, you know, you've, you're probably having to make these decisions you know, yourself, your business. What's what's your take on that kind of staying private versus going public dilemma? I haven't had a dil- dilemma yet, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but it, it's in the end of the day, uh, as uh, the key difference, like for my friends that uh, are running like public companies, it, it is that uh, the public market focus uh, it, it forces you on short termism, focuses you, it, it makes you kind of like focus on the next quarter, next quarter, next quarter. Whereas being private, you can focus more on the uh, long impact and realizing your vision. Um, so that, that that's uh, the take I have from, from my friends. Um, in in general, when it comes to uh, layoffs, uh, we would have seen that there's like less layoffs on, from some of the equivalent on the public market. There is so that maybe kind of like is an indicator that these companies, when you are public, you have to be run in a more sustainable manner than on a fast growth, like uh, just try and grow at all cost environment. For sure. Russ, what's your, I mean, you were being slightly critical of Stripe at the beginning, but what's what's your take on Stripe going going public this year? Look, no, I mean, I, I like I said, I mean, I, I I like Stripe. I think my point was the the, the, the valuation isn't isn't everything right and you know we've seen we've seen stripe laying people off and all of that sort of stuff and i think look these are you know i think we've we've tended to call them like vanity metrics right these sort of valuation things and we we all get carried away and we report them i don't necessarily though think that we should be impressed by lists like this as much as we were and i think actually particularly now because i think you know look at silicon valley i think Money is already moving away from sort of the big established techs into some of those more emerging technologies, crypto, metaverse, AI. And I think as we saw sort of in the, the, the sort of great recession, there's always a bit of a correction. So I think the companies that are really established now within financial services topping these types of lists, this to me almost feels like a red herring. I think that the, the things that we're going to be talking about in the future probably aren't on these lists. And I think that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. And if uh, listeners, you would like to have a discussion or listen to a discussion on what other metrics we can use to measure success in fintech beyond valuation alone, you can check out episode 685 of Fintech Insider from wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, now for the section of the show that we call Big Click Energy, which is a quickfire roundup of some more click-worthy news from this week. Ross, do you want to kick things off for us, please? Absolutely. So this one comes from AltFi with the headline, Australian BNPL hum retreating from England as market worsens. So following the departure of Zip and OpenPay, Hum is now the latest Australian buy now, pay later provider to pull back on expansion plans. Hum has told its investors it will prudently retreat from broader UK expansion, instead focusing on its more profitable Irish and Northern Ireland operations. The company explained that while Great Britain has a large total addressable credit market, the decision was made due to a more challenging macro environment. Buy now, pay later has been under considerable pressure for the last year now, as the worsening economic environment causes retailers to reassess commission-based BMPL services and consumers to rein in their spending. So, I mean, we've touched on it throughout this show, I guess, given the the current economic climate and everything we've seen in terms of layoffs, et cetera, I guess it's just really no surprise that fintechs are prioritizing core markets over international expansion, right? I mean, it's not the first one we've seen. I doubt it'll be the last We'll have to have to wait and see. Um, our next story in this section comes from Finextra, and that is that cashless Denmark records a year without bank robberies. Denmark's transition away from cash has seen the country record its first ever year in which it experienced zero bank robberies. Since 2017, there have been fewer than 10 a year until 2022 when the number fell to zero. Denmark has seen declining cash usage in recent years as people move to electronic alternatives, notably contactless payments. The trend accelerated during the COVID pandemic. The fall in robberies has coincided with many banks completely closing their branch cash registers. However, the union notes that employees still face potential violence and threats, with much of the abuse now occurring digitally and over the phone. Um, obviously, fewer violent bank robberies are definitely a good thing, but for some reason this story made me feel just like a little bit sad, um, which I know probably makes it sound like completely mad, but I think it's probably because I watched Die Hard over Christmas, and this made me realise like that scene when like the vault opens and they're just like, wow, look at all this cash. Like by the time that my one-year-old son is old enough to watch that film, he's, I can just, I think I can just see that he's going to turn to me and be like, what is that? <laughs> and I think it probably just made me feel, made me feel super old, but um, setting my old age grumpiness aside, I think it really does feel like we're on this sort of inexorable march towards a cashless society now. You know, these kinds of stories so show some of the negative aspects of physical currency that might drop away, but I still do very much believe that cash fulfills really important social functions that we still haven't managed to replicate in the truly digital world. So um, lots still to work on. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of today's show, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. Uh, taking this one from AltFi, and that is that NatWest CEO is receiving a damehood and Fintech Scotland share has been recognised in the New Year's honours list in the UK. NatWest's Alison Rose and Fintech Scotland's Stephen Ingledew were named in King Charles's first New Year's Honours list. Rose became the first woman to lead a top UK lender when she took over as CEO in November 2019. She has been an ardent champion of diversity, equity and inclusion, particularly pushing to improve female representation in the financial sector. In 2019, the government invited her to review the barriers facing women in business, the Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship, addressing the gender gap. Three years on, the review has led to the number of women 
run businesses increasing by 33%. Stephen Ingledew, Executive Chair of Fintech Scotland, was awarded an Order of the British Empire, OBE, for his services to the financial technology sector. Ingledew founded Fintech Scotland in 2018 and has led it ever since, advocating to make the financial world more open and inclusive, as well as founding Fintech National Network, facilitating collaboration across UK fintech clusters. Well, congrats to both of them. Um, is it good to see financial services being recognised in the King's Honours list? Gary, were you, were you chuffed when this came out? Yeah, yeah absolutely. But the, the bigger news it is that it's like a female leader getting the, the download, which I think, uh, well, I, I believe the financial like services has a lot to do when it comes to uh, representation of like females in the board seat and like in leadership roles. So it's, it's, I think it's great, great indicator and uh, thing. it also like shows that uh, to some extent like UK may be uh, more relevant than some other markets uh, in the rest of the world and uh, you can lead, lead by example, but we'd love to see more kind of like female kind of like leaders and uh, here to here, here, like a big fan of uh, diversity and uh, inclusion. So we would love to see other companies do that as well. So we're just going to see like a big, uh, big companies, but also going to see more female leaders in uh, leading like startups as co-founders and CEOs and so on. Absolutely. Lindsay, obviously this is quite a like niche UK thing. Do you have any kind of equivalent awards or lists in the US where people kind of get to put on a fancy dress or a hat and go meet people? Not at that scale. However, I'd say within within the fintech realm in December, the New York City fintech women's group did honor their, their latest list of inspiring fintech women. And I think that having a dedicated list to, to leading ladies of this industry across not only entrepreneurship operation, but investing is, is something that needs to be celebrated more broadly. Disclaimer, I did end up on that list this year. So I did get to put on a fancy dress and go to the New York Stock Exchange. And it was really just a surreal moment. I didn't, I'm like, a, I don't humble brag. Like I didn't post about it, but it was, it was amazing. Um, and most of my friends just looked at me and they said, oh, I thought you were already on it. I was just like, thanks friends. <laughs> That's an awesome achievement. Congratulations. I really hope Thank that you, you were wearing that atomic hat that um, for, our li- <laughs> for, our, for our listeners, Lindsay has got a shelf behind her, which has got an amazing like mini Yoda with an atomic branded cap on it, which has just been like joining in our podcast recording or, or show. So did that make it? To appearance? clarify, it's, it's Grogu, the, the baby Yoda, so to speak. Right. But, you know, okay. just for the Star Wars nerds on the on the podcast, <laughs> season three drops very soon. Okay. Can't wait. <laughs> Ross, who, who else would you like to see in financial services being given an honor of recognition or a dame knighthood, whatever? Oh, it's a, it's a tricky question. I guess, look, first of all, I'd, I'd sort of shout out and congratulate, I mean, Alison Rose, obviously, you know, a sort of friend of 11FS, as is sort of Steve, Stephen Ingledew. We've, we've had him on the on the show before. I think there's he's such a passionate advocate for um, fintech in Scotland. Um, so it's great to see those guys recognised. I think what I really like is this isn't just the old-fashioned, like, services to banking, right? And I think, like, this is about inclusion, hopefully a really good reflection of how far the industry has come from like a diversity and inclusion perspective okay so building on that right rather than give it to give give my honor which i'm sure everybody will be just dying for rather than giving that to like a single person i'm gonna give it to like all the people slaving away 
in like the back like of banks trying to what like keep all of these like legacy core systems together present some sort of front end experience that's you know dressed up as being like truly digital i think those are my uh, those are my real heroes it's very noble of you i appreciate that gary who are you giving your your award to to to, to me it's, it's uh, similar like tone to to ross it is the uh, everyday people working with this large like like companies but also like startups just trying to to make like a an impact every day like uh, a small smaller impact just everything adds up in the end to like a big wave in the industry for sure lindsay what about you i mean ross really really cut to my core as a former auditor at dtcc which like keeps the capital markets afloat in america so it's very it's really humbling to be recognized i would I'm say i would so say I, I could do that for you i'm gonna give it to the the frontline customer support reps that are tirelessly working for consumers to back office issues, especially during travel season, when we think through like all the different delays and weather concerns, like the people that get the least amount of love and frustration first and foremost as an affrontage, like without them, like none of us could have made it home for the holidays. Many of us couldn't have transferred money or, or done these, you know, day-to-day -day requirements that are, are, we think are happening just by magic, but there's really a, a human in the loop. So kudos to them. Kudos indeed. Um, I think mine would have to go, I mean, I think he's already got a CBE, which I think is commander of the British Empire. Um, but mine would go to Martin Lewis. I think he should have a, a knighthood. He's um, a UK consumer advocate champion who just really holds big players and government figures to, to account, uses his voice to give people financial guidance in a human understandable way uh, and to kind of really champion for thing to as you to use your language Lindsay to kind of put the weapons back into consumers hands and, and try and be the advocate for change so yeah I'd be surprised if he doesn't get a, a knighthood knighthood sometime soon but he's doing an awesome job and I'm sure there's lots of equivalent champions in all these different markets around the world who who perform equally important roles so hope they get their respective recognition in their own markets as well um i think that probably wraps up this week's new show um thank you so much to today's guests where can people find out a bit more about you Lindsay? yeah i'm Lindsay at atomicfi.com or on twitter at lc davis 1225 awesome ross what about you uh yeah you can find me on twitter at ross gallagher 07 uh, and gary what about you uh gary qb twitter and gary qb linkedin awesome and as for me you can find me on linkedin at kate moody or on twitter at k8 moody thank you so much for listening join the conversation on social media email podcast at lemonfest.com and find our mailbag link in the show description we'd love to hear from you thanks very much goodbye